Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Aaliyah Daniels, the co-founder and COO of Reverie. From a very young age, Aaliyah Daniels recognized the power of representation within the media, quickly identifying how few women looked like her across entertainment, business, and politics. Aaliyah became determined to make an impact. She equipped herself with a bachelor's degree in music and communication studies with a mass media emphasis from Albion College and a Juris Doctorate from Loyola Law School and sought out to change the face of media. As a business and entertainment attorney, Aaliyah has not only represented clients in the digital entertainment and tech space, but is also a featured speaker on the ever-changing streaming entertainment arena. Since 2015, Aaliyah has been consistently named to the prestigious Southern California Rising Stars list by super lawyers for six years in a row. Today, Aaliyah has found her niche in the intersection of entrepreneurship, entertainment, and social impact as a co-founder and chief operating officer for Reverie, a global queer streaming TV network. As an advocate for inclusion for all underrepresented communities, the cornerstone of Aaliyah's personal mission is to create avenues for authentic representation in media and business. And I am super psyched to actually talk with you. So Aaliyah, welcome to the Second Fan Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You are doing some really cool stuff. And I have mad respect for you getting your law degree. I did an undergraduate degree in law, but that was just like getting like a, an arts degree with an economics major. But you went, <laughs> you went all the way. I did. I did. Did you yeah. did you want to be a lawyer when you were a child or what was your drive for that? That's so funny you asked me that question because uh, in third grade, I started telling people that I wanted to be a lawyer, but truthfully, I wanted to be a singer. But when you tell people you want to be a singer, they ask you to sing. And I was super shy as a kid. <laughs> but my best friend in third grade was obsessed with being a lawyer. So I was like, okay, that's, that's the ticket. So I started telling people in third grade, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then here we go, you know, Fast forward several years later, I decided to become a lawyer. Who knew? That's amazing. <laughs> one of one of my kids, when he was about five, said he wanted to be a bus driver. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, so you could have a chain of buses. And he's like, no, no, I just want to drive a bus. And then when he was like 12, I'm like, so what do you want to do? And he goes, he goes, I want to be a bus driver. I'm like, shit, we are really in trouble here. This is this is a vision we need to work on. Double down. <laughs> yeah. So so for law school, um, what do you think you pulled from law school that you use today in your career? Other than the traditional, like, you know, the law, like contract law right. or employment training. Yeah, I think the thing about law school for me was, and I think a lot of lawyers say this as well, is that it teaches you how to think. It teaches mm. you how to think differently. And so when it comes to business, obviously it helps with being able to review all of our contracts from a legal perspective, but it really, you, you don't necessarily think from the present standpoint, you're always thinking, okay, what does this maybe look like? two years down the line, five years down the line, how is, how, what are the potential impacts that this could really create for us? And then what is it we truly need out of what this, you know, deal or situation could be. And so it, it, it forces, forces me to think from a very broad perspective and not so like siloed into just like, okay, right here, right now, this is what we're doing. Okay. Now lawyers tend to think about risk mitigation and they tend to think about the, yeah, the risks and, mm-hmm. and they, um, and COOs tend to think about how, right. We're putting the systems and figuring out how to make the vision come true, but then you're also in a really entrepreneurial organization and really affecting change. So how do you, 
juxtapose? How do you how do you deal with both of those two issues? The fact that you're supposed to be watching for risk, but also you're supposed to be driving forward at a thousand miles an hour. Absolutely. I think I'm very lucky because I have I'm a, I'm a co-founder of our business as well. Hmm. And so uh, there's four co-founders total. Myself, our CEO, Damian Pelliccioni, our chief business officer, Christopher Rodriguez, and our chief product officer, LaShawn McGee. And so we all kind of play our different roles in that. Damien is 100% the visionary. He had the idea for Reverie. He is always pushing forward, big thinking, forward thinking. You know, Chris and myself actually met in law school. We became friends in law school together. And so we both are always <laughs> thinking about mitigating risk um, from a big perspective. But there's something that I've learned about not necessarily being so risk adverse because also often, you know, the big reward does require big risk. And so, um, in my time, my short time, only five years in as an entrepreneur, it has really allowed me to reassess the my my overall feeling when it comes to risk and what's worth taking it taking the risk for. What's worth you know this is a chance to really do something different. This is a chance to really break the mold and so let's go for it. So that's something that I've I've been able to do. But I I can say in the beginning of the business I was definitely very very risk adverse, especially because I was coming from a litigation background uh, in addition yeah. to doing some transactional work. So it sounds yeah. like you're getting to be a teenager all over again, where you kind of, you're going to break the rules, but not too far. Yeah, exactly. There right. you go. You know where the line really is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so four of you as co-founders of the organization. And when did you start five years ago? Yeah, we got together in November, 2015 and we went, we were in beta by March of 2016. Okay. So pretty fast launch. And then four of you. So how did you divide and conquer the roles? How did you decide who was going to get to do what? Oh my goodness. I think we just naturally kind of fit in. So I was doing um, marketing. I was doing obviously operations. My background is in employment law. So I was doing HR as well. Um, you know, Damien and LaShawn were doing sort of the tech uh, and Damien was also doing sales and he had like a lot of BD work, business development work that he, he knew how to do. Chris was very, very instrumental in the content um, side. So actually acquiring content um, and, and contract work and all of the legal work. And Chris and I, we are very lucky in that because we're both lawyers, we get to split the legal work. So we're not like 100% lawyers. We're kind of like, you know, he gets to do this kind of legal work. I do this kind of legal work, but we also oh, cool. get to do other stuff too. So it's kind of nice. All right. So go, let's go back and talk to us about what Reverie is then. So just walk us through layman's terms. Is it kind yeah. of like Netflix for the queer media or is it for, is it all sides? Is it everything? Is it, what's the deal? And then yeah, also, so, and then how, and then how does it work? How's your plot? How do you make your money? How does that all work? Totally. So Reverie is a digital cable network for the queer community. We created it for uh, the queer community. Um, three out of four of the founders are queer. I am an ally. Um, and we, we really, we birthed it out of uh, the new Apple television. I look that way because my Apple TV is right over there. <laughs> uh, we birthed it out. The new Apple television came out and we searched the app stores. The first time you could just literally search app stores and download things. And we searched LGBTQ, gay, queer, trans, lesbian, everything you could think of underneath the sun to try and find something. And there was nothing there. Not much there. Yeah. Not much there. And so it was just really, a, it was a quick conversation of we should do this. And I was like, yeah, we should. So <laughs> we, we, we started out as a subscription video on demand uh, platform where you could find our app and uh, download it and subscribe and get access to all types of content. We've always had films and shows, music and podcasts. Um, and then we expanded uh, our overall offering to include advertising video on demand. So you could watch 
things for free with an ad in front of it. Um, and then now today, when you look at our, our service, we offer live linear channels. Um, so you can watch 24 seven channels for free with queer content 24 seven. Um, we're available on like Roku channels with Samsung TV plus we have channels on so many different platforms, but we also have all of our channels on our platform as well. So when you um, go to the, the net, the, the application or go to the website, you actually can see, you know, five different channels that are live. So there's a news network, there's OML on Reverie, which is the first ever queer women's focused 24 seven live channel. Then we also have Reverie 2, our regular Reverie Live channel and Reverie wow. 3. So there's literally always something to watch. So you're more like a portal for all of this than one than just a Netflix, aren't you? Yeah, it's yes, exactly. You're more like the Apple TV versus Netflix even. Like you've got yeah. all of, you've got all the apps and all the streaming coming through you. That's the goal. That's the goal. Multiple channels. So you always have something to watch. The idea is that from a perspective, a community perspective, you're able to always turn on Reverie and be able to see yourself. So who do you compete against? Do you compete against mainstream, just mainstream TV, or are there other channels that are competing for the same niche? Not doing the exact same thing that we're doing. I think we're, we've, and this is part of sort of the forward thinking, big thinking thing. When we first started subscription video on demand, it was us and a couple of other places. And then you know, we just started thinking as consumers, right? As people who watch content and engage with content. And Chris, I give him full credit for this. He was like, you know what? You know, I make decisions all day long. I'm constantly thinking about what I'm going to do here. What am I going to do here? And he's like, I just want to come home and turn on something. And it's playing for me. I don't want to decide what I'm going to watch. And from that, it start, it sparked us doing our, our live 24-7 channels. And we just realized there was such a, an opportunity to be able to offer something like this because it hasn't been done in this way before. Mm, interesting. Is Netflix dead or dying? It feels like they have a lot of competition they didn't have five, six years ago. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's just kind of the nature of the game. This is, const- this is a constantly evolving um industry and I like to joke that no one knows what they're doing the big guys don't know what they're doing the little guys don't know what we're doing so it gives a little bit more of an even playing field in terms of figuring out what works for people and I think Netflix still has you know they they've really figured out a way to like get these originals that become like talked about you think about Bridgerton right now and everyone's talking about it and everyone's got to see it right they figured out ways to do that that's going to keep bringing people back now does that mean they're going to like stay on forever from the subscription perspective who knows? But uh-huh. they, they will come back to watch this sort of zeitgeist content that they've like released. That's a part of it. But I, I do think more and more, and we're seeing this, like you look at the rise of Tubi, you look at the rise of, you know, kind of what Peacock is doing as well. People also want to just be able to come in, turn on a piece of, you know, turn on their, their television and just have something play for them. They don't always want to have to think about what they're going to watch. Yeah, that's interesting as well. So how did you fund this, this startup of the company? So we did um, friends and family initially, um, and uh, we're actually closing out around now. Um, and so, yeah, we've 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 taken on investments and we've just built built our business from there. And profitable. Yeah. How many employees? Sixteen. Shit. Yeah. Shit. Okay, so you just did a, you just did a round. Have you announced the round yet? As to what how uh, much you raised? Shortly. Okay, so I can't say that then. then. Not yet. <laughs> Damn, this is early stage. Yeah. But but already successful. Already successful. We're available in over 250 million homes and devices. 
so what's the player is are you just gonna are you gonna need to do another round was this a debt, debt round or equity uh debt debt yeah we did convertible notes whoa so you don't even have to say so you guys are in a really good position so are you just <laughs> is it you just going to turn around and sell this thing next year or continue to grow it i mean we keep growing it i think we've really we've really hit you know understanding what the audience wants understanding what audience the audience needs getting really amazing content and really being able to build this into something really amazing which i'm so so excited about do you rev share with the shows? Is that how they make their money? Or so you're not paying them, you're you're more licensing than giving them a stream, like a percentage. Is that how it works? Yeah, we do rev share and we also do sometimes uh MGs. It just depends on negotiations for the show. And then you said did, did I hear you say doing podcasts as well? Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very cool model. All right. So four friends start off the company together, or four co-founders start off the company together. I'm sure it's been a completely easy five years. <laughs> it's you know it's it actually has worked out really really well and i'm i'm so grateful for that but there's got to have been some ups and downs there's normal ups and downs right yeah, so how do you sure. how do you work through the first off how do you how does the leadership team function is it is it the four of you making decisions together kind of as a board and then you then you run the business more as a leadership team or is it is yeah, so we, 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 we do obviously make up the board as well. And so we, we are very clear about what hat you're wearing at what time. Are you wearing your executive hat? Or are you wearing your founder's hat? And so that definitely helps because it helps you to understand exactly like what role you're in at that moment. And so we have very clear founders meetings where we talk about big picture items in the business, things that we have to get approval for, um, things of that nature. And then as far as like the actual business day-to-day running, it's, it's more from a leadership perspective. That's interesting. Okay. So then how do the four of you stay on the same page from a vision perspective? How do, how do you all kind of uh, get aligned with vision so then you can figure out execution? Clear, clear communication, lots of communication. I mean, we are like, this is our fifth year, right? So we've now kind of figured out what works best for us in terms of doing that. And so we always are checking back in to say, okay, this was the goal. This was our big goal last year. This is what we did. You know, we have at the end of every year, we have a big vision meeting. It's funny, that's what we call it, where we're talking about, okay, what's the next step? What is the big vision of the company that we're working towards? And then from there, once we know at the end of the year how we're doing it, beginning of the year, it's all about execution. Okay, let's set up all the processes and protocols and figuring out exactly what it's gonna take to execute on that vision. Love us. Okay. So the fact that you didn't raise money until recently, other than a friends and family round, is that why you were able to stay at 16 employees? And are you going to use this money to then grow? Or are you able to stay lean like this? I think we're, we're going to keep expanding, but I, I think also like being lean has been really helpful for us because it allows for us to be a little bit more nimble too. Yeah. So as we make any types of shifts and adjustments, you only have a department of three or four yeah. that you've got to completely turn around versus 10 or 12, you know, or, or more. So, so at 16 employees, I mean, Clubhouse is running at like 10 to 15 employees right now. And I think, I think WhatsApp, when they sold for 1.8 billion had 55 people. So you guys are on that very similar kind of trajectory, I think that, so what are the decisions you're making that are allowing you to stay lean? What are the decisions you're making that are allowing you to scale, like to grow when you're so lean? Like how will give us some of the, not trade secrets, but some of the business secrets, the stuff that you're not taught in school. Yeah, I think really understand your business. I think if you understand what your business is and how you make money, then you don't necessarily spend a bunch of time doing things that are not going to make you money, but they seem really cool and they seem super fun. And so I think 
understanding that allows us to say, okay, now, now we need to focus in on doing this specific thing because it's one going to expand our footprint in the way that we need it to. And it's going to also help us bring in more revenue. So for us, it's looking at, you know, our distribution, like how many different places can we have our channels be available? Okay, great. Now let's focus in on getting our channels in as many places as possible, because that's really a goal for us is to have reverie everywhere. Mm. So are you saying no more often than you say yes as a company or is the, is the clarity of vision allowing you to not even need to say no? I think sometimes you, you understand that the no is just a not right now. So it's like mm-hmm. being, you know, understanding, like if something comes to us and we're like, yeah, this isn't a Q1 initiative, but come back to us in Q3 and maybe we can like talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so understanding, you know, not every no is really a full no, because if it, if it aligns with the business, but really being clear on what is the focus for right here, right now, and we focus quarter at a quarter, month at a month, time, week at a week to understand and make sure that we're staying on track. When were you first approached to sell the company? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even, uh, it's not even were you, it's when was it? Yeah. Yeah. Early? Yeah. yeah relatively early, actually. Yeah. And then is it just no, not, or no, not now, or just no? Uh, it's too early. It's yeah. too early. Yeah. Yeah. yeah too I, early. This is really cool. You don't trip across companies like this, this often that are so, so, so early. I, I told the founder of Uber, it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard. Cause it was, it was earlier than this. He, he hadn't even hired Travis yet. It was still just Garrett camp with a concept. Oh. I'm like, dumb idea. You'll never, <laughs> never, never be able to scale that thing. So what are the struggles? What, what are the different hurdles you guys have had to come through over the last number of years? Yeah, I think, um, I think understanding like the investment game is, is very interesting, especially when you are so early um, and understanding like what is the big picture and being able to have folks wanting to, to do that. I think um, people are afraid of entertainment, which I get, and understanding that this isn't necessarily, it may look on its face like an entertainment play, but it, it, it isn't. And so there's a lot of education that's required to be able to have people understand exactly what our business is and what we do. Um, it's not, we're out, you know, on sets making content, which I think is what a lot of people think that you're doing. So they're like, Oh, we'll never see a return on that. Um, that's, that's not what we're doing. And so when you, when you can get the education piece of it in, in, in focus, I think people really understand and, and they get like, Oh, this is very big. Yeah. Um, so what is it? If it's not entertainment, is it a tech play, a platform play? Is it a media yeah, it's it's a I would say it's a combination of understanding um, its distribution, its tech, it is ad sales. That's a big part of it too. Um, so when you can understand all of those things put together, you can see that it's not like I said, just folks being on set on set with a camera shooting content. So what parts of the business are you outsourcing? You guys must have gotten really creative at outsourcing some components of the business. Like, do you outsource the ad sales? Do you outsource just do you outsource some of the purchase the the acquisition of of shows? What do you outsource? We outsource ad sales. Uh, so we right. have an outside sales, outside sales team. Our CEO, who's an amazing salesperson as well, does do some of our sales, but we do outsource our, our sales team. And so that, that definitely helps. Okay. What else? I guess all of the, like all the shows are being developed from outside. So you're not having to do any of that. Correct. Yes. 
So we're, for the most part, we've, we've done a few more originals, but we have several originals. But the thing is, what we like to do is we partner with producers, producers who know what they're doing. And then we just, you know, we participate, but we, we're not necessarily in the day in, day out of the actual production of, of the, the content, which is helpful. Do you, ha- do you have to say no to some of the content as well? Like, are you, is there a, yeah, like, yeah, a, like sometimes like, we do. Like a so normal. Yeah, there's there, there's sometimes we do. We 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 have a submissions process, so people submit their content. And in the beginning, it was us going out to folks that we knew who had content and saying, "Hey, come be a part of our platform." And now we've gotten really lucky in that we have people come to us, and they you know they come to us and bring us their content and ask to be a part of the service. Your timing is so right on this as well, just in terms of where society is, because I remember when the, I'm from part-time from Vancouver and in Vancouver, the L word was produced. And I think it was like the first like gay or lesbian show on TV. And it was like, Oh my gosh. And it was like, now I watch any of the episodes. I'm like, really? Like that's as far as we're going. Like that's so like, <laughs> so PC, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know? So yeah. And really interesting. All right. So where do you go next? Where's the company going next? continuing to expand, continuing to have as many channels, have our, our, our channels in as many places as possible, developing new channels. Like I said, we launched uh, Reverie News last year. We launched, we launched OML and Reverie last year, um, continuing to launch channels within our, our own service, but also continuing to have our channels available in different places as well. And did, did COVID throw a wrench into your plans at all? I mean, with, with 16 employees, you know, at least you weren't having doubts or, or move 400 people from home, but did it throw yeah. much of a wrench? Surprisingly, no, actually. I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a transition, but it, it, I was very, very happy with, with how everything we were able to transition to work from home because for the most part, we were already on Slack, right? So, which everyone loves, I'm sure. <laughs> we, were, we were already on Slack. You know, we, we, we definitely do more Google Hangouts than we have ever done before. But, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we are still able to be very, um, very efficient in what we're doing, um, still being able to, to get things done. And I think, you know, also being able to find interesting ways to continue to create that company culture, and to allow people to still feel connected to a team, even though we're all working from working remotely. So, you know, having game nights with the with the team um, to be able to see each other. We did like a virtual uh, escape room, which when you think of the logistics of a virtual escape room, it's it's fun. But we, you know, we had a virtual escape room, which was a fun time to do. And you know, we've we've done things to be able to keep to you know have people still feel you know, have camaraderie with their, with their, their coworkers. That's cool. My sister actually had to pivot drastically. She ran a a big business with about 150,000 people playing co-ed intramural sports and you can't just play volleyball out of your living room. So she (laughs) paused that company that she's been running for 25 years and she started an online business running events. So one of the events they do is escape rooms for people, but they do escape rooms and trivia and bingo nights and like these crazy fun um, events for people all over the world, but yeah, she's growing like, like nuts. So what else do you do? What were you doing before COVID to, um, to build your company culture? I mean, I think we were in the office like together. So it made it, it made it a lot easier. We would always have, you know, um, happy hours together. We would always have like game nights together. We would have like our company end of the year holiday party, which got to be via zoom this year, which is fun. Um, you know, we, we, we always would do things with each other. Um, you know, having company lunches and being able to talk to each other. That's not at your desk talking about what the next task is going to be really being able to get to know each other as people. 
And, and I think we've been really, really lucky in that all of our, our employees have really gotten along with each other and, you know, become friends. And so it, it definitely helps. What do you look for when you're hiring people? Um, definitely someone who is, they, they align with our vision. So that means that they have a passion for creating and supporting and serving a community. Um, they're not necessarily coming, someone who's just coming to work to get a check, which is valuable at times, but genuinely the work that we do, you know, there's only 16 of us. There's not a lot of us. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you've got to be willing to say, okay, well today I'm doing this, but tomorrow I might have to do a little bit of this, which is kind of different. You've got to be nimble and flexible. And I think if you genuinely believe in the vision and you genuinely believe that everyone deserves to see themselves in media, then it allows for you to be able to want to be a part of something like this. So that's, that's, and that comes across pretty clearly and pretty quickly. And is, is part of your mission, the whole um, representation and inclusion in the media, something that I read in your bio and I wanted to ask yeah. you about something that you're passionate about. Is that part of the vision for the organization too, or is that just your, Absolutely. yeah. So what, Absolutely. What, what does that mean? I mean, I think for me, it's really about being able to create spaces where people genuinely can see themselves and not just sort of paying lip service to it. So a lot of times what happens is, and I think queer media is a great example of this. I think traditionally, when you looked at queer media, a lot of times it was like cis, straight, white guys, like cis, cis gay, white guys, right? Yeah. And that was kind of it. And that was the only story that there was when there's so many other people in the community who never got their time to shine. And so for us at Reverie, we've really, really tried to focus in on making sure that we are offering stories that are POC, making sure that we have, you know, stories of women, making sure that we're offering trans stories and, you know, asexual stories and stories that are genuinely just not being told in different places. And so, you know, that's one of the thing with OML and Reverie we were so excited about because there's never, ever been a channel that's 24 seven of just queer women, mm. never. And so being able to create something like that, where someone can literally turn it on and go, oh, I, res I resonate with that, or oh, that right. may not look exactly like me, but I understand that perspective, right? That is what it truly means for me to create like authentic representation in media and paying attention to not just who's in front of the camera, but who's behind the camera as well and who's writing the stories, because it can be, you know, someone who has no idea what the experience is, but they saw something once and now they think they can tell the story. And it's like, it, it comes across very quickly, whether or not someone really knows what they're talking about. And are we at a stage now, it feels like we are, but are we at a stage now where there's enough great content that you can be as inclusive all the way back to who the directors are and who is working on the films and yeah. versus just the story itself? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what we've really been trying to do. We're always looking at not just bringing on content and going, oh, it's a, you know, it's a queer story. Instead, we're like, yeah, who's the writer? Who's the director? Who's like, who's a part of this? Because yeah. that's important as well. That's intriguing. All right. Your skill set. Where have you had to grow? You know, it's so funny. I, I think for me, it is understanding that I don't have to do everything. It's my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. I have no problem getting my hands dirty, especially when you have a startup because of a startup, yep. you've got to get your hands dirty. I went yep. from uploading content myself and building really awful graphics for social media. I am not a graphic designer by any means. Um, you know, doing everything as you can to really being able to go, okay, I can take a step back. I have a team. Let me let my team do this. I know that they can do this. I trust them. I, I believe that they can handle this. And allow myself to really get into the nitty gritty of like, okay, let's keep executing. Let's take, let's, let's look in the other places that I can help. And so that, that for me has been a, let's call it a fun challenge. <laughs> How about your big mistakes? What do you think you've screwed up? 
I got some big ones in my career. <laughs> I think, I think similarly, I definitely had a period of time where I was trying to do everything. At one point I was like recording our podcast, editing the podcast, oh, running wow. HR, running marketing, right? Like, you know, like doing all of the things at the same oh. time. And it's yeah, like, yeah. nope. So what, what was it like, did you, was it because revenue was starting to come in that you could start using some of that cash to hire or was it just finally saying no? I think it was a combination of both. It was a combination of like really understanding your needs and saying, mm-hmm. okay, I, I get where we are. I need someone else who can do this. Cause my time is better spent doing this versus editing a podcast. Let's be honest. Right. Like yeah. I, it's more effective for me to be reviewing a contract than editing a podcast. And so I think understanding that and then being able to, yes, have like the revenue coming in and having, you know, uh, you know, investment here and there come in, be able to, to hire folks to, to be able to really take things to the next level. Interesting. It's funny how easy you are to speak with that. Like, I just feel like we're sitting having a conversation because I almost said, oh, I have a podcast too. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm actually talking to you on my podcast. This is so weird. Like, I I literally felt like I was sitting having a chat with you. I was excited to tell you about the Second in Command podcast. I'm like, no, wait, that's exactly what we're doing. I think I've heard of it. I think I've heard of it. Yeah, right. Do you think that's so weird? I'm either really tired or just like, I was excited talking to you. So do you think that your, your funding did it put the company at risk at any point that you were, were really bootstrapping for too long? Like, did you, did you almost wait too long at at any point? Do you think? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, we definitely, definitely bootstrapped, but I I think that it always kind of came at the right time, Mm. like at the right, like it would, it would come in and it'd be like, Oh, this is perfect timing. Now we can hire that extra person. Now we can, you know, get this different technology that's going to take us to the next level. Like now we can, you know, do start to execute on this next thing that we've really been kind of putting off. It just always has come at exactly the right time. So very, very lucky in that regard. You know, what's interesting. I was talking to someone about this the other day and I said, they're like, I can't hire that person. It's like 150 grand. I'm like, yeah, but not today. It's like, it's $12,000 this month. And, and actually it's only $3,000 this week. He goes, Oh, I can do that. I'm like, exactly. Like yeah, exactly. You, know, you, you can find the $3,000 a week. And then all of a sudden it's like, but so many people get so scared of the big number without yeah. thinking through. And that that's probably what was partially successful for you guys is you did, you grew properly. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you're 100% right. I, before I did this work, I, like I said, I did employment law and I worked mm-hmm. with startups and I worked in business and, 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 you know, entertainment and tech. And th- those are the conversations that I would have. So it's always fun being on the other side of the table going now your turn. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't look at the big number, look at what your, you know, what's your payroll cost going to be on a monthly basis. What's your payroll cost going to be even just paycheck by paycheck. And then you think to yourself, Oh wait, I actually can do this. Okay. Yeah, can and this thing is going to change your world, you know, doing this yeah. one thing really really help is the funding going to change your world this this round it has it definitely yeah definitely it's definitely allowed us to really be able to to do the hires that we've wanted it's really helped us to be able to um partner in different ways with with some um some other vendors that really is going to help us to to expand our footprint footprint right now, which again, for us, it's all about scaling. We've mm-hmm. built the business. It's now about scaling it out. And so being able to do that, which is a great place to be, to be honest with you, when you're no longer building it and figuring it out, but just scaling it, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's really interesting because once you have the pieces in place, it scales pretty quickly too, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. It's really cool. <laughs> what, what, 
business ideas did you throw out along the way? In terms of things that we should or shouldn't have done? You know that you knew you shouldn't do like, or you just decided not to do like what, were there any things that you're like, yeah, dumb, like not even the not nows, but the no, we're just not going to do it. Well, there's things that we tried that we were like, oh yeah, no, (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't, that wasn't the, the look at one point we just, we just launched. And so maybe like within a year of us launching, we were going to launch a second app and, and it was like, no, let's, let's focus, focus people exactly on like the app that we're focused on, like Reverie, go to get, go Mm. get that one. And then we can talk about the other one later, but go get that one. So, right, so you, yeah. <laughs> and you guys were all in the same office until March COVID hits. Are you starting to hire people that are not based in an office now? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, most of our hires now have been East Coast. Uh, we've got three people on the East Coast now, which is really awesome. Um, and they've, they've been great. Like all of them have been really, really awesome. But again, had we really kept ourselves in the box of you've got to be here in LA, you've got to be in the office in this way. And I think it's changed our business really overall, because now moving forward, as we keep growing, we know that for hiring, you don't have to be in house. I think a lot of businesses are understanding that their idea that they are not a work from home business is actually not true. They can still grow their business and do what they need to do. I spoke to a a past guest there, the the second command for the AARP, the American Association of Retired People. And they're classically a very older run business, you know, 1400 employees. And he said, if you'd ever asked me if we could been work from home, he said, no, like we're going to shut it down. (laughs) And then he said, within a week, we were all working from home. He's like, wow, like what a game changing mindset of what if we could, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people realize that because so many times it's like, oh, that's not even an option for us. That's right. we, we, we can't do that. That's impossible. Well, it's now, pretty possible now. <laughs> will you go back to an office? I think we, whenever we can, we probably right. will go back to an office, but I don't think it's going to be a requirement that you work in the office. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, right? We're not quite sure exactly when, and we're not quite sure exactly what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, talk about some of the meeting rhythms that you have for your management or leadership team. What do those look like? Yeah. So um, the way that we work now, which obviously it's flipped around because of COVID. So that's fun. Um, is uh, we have our stand up, our, our regular exec stand up that happens once a week. And then, and in that meeting, we're going through and we're talking through what our goals are for the next week based on the goals that we set for the quarter and for the month. We then set our goals for the week. We talk about what was accomplished, what wasn't accomplished. We figure out like any things that we need to change. And then uh, the next week I do a meeting. I do about a 30 minute meeting with each of the department heads just to kind of really check in from like, because in the exec meeting, this exec standup meeting, it doesn't really have the time to get into the nitty gritty around certain things. And so I, I meet with each of the department heads and I talk through you know, what's going on in your department? Where can I support you better? Do you need more support? Like, what can I do to help you out? And then how are you actually feeling about what like the goals are? Like, is this, is this really feasible for you? Do you need an extension? Do we need to like switch things out? Um, just trying as best as I can to be there because then I have a better understanding that I then can, when I do my meeting with the CEO, I can go back to him and say, hey, I know we said we were going to get this done by this date, but it's looking like we might need a little bit more time. Let's, 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 you know, try and maneuver this a little bit better here. And I have a better overall picture of what's going on in the company for me to be able to report back to him. Interesting. I like that. Tell me about the, um, the big wins that you guys have had at Reverie. What, any, any big kind of home runs? 
Yeah, I mean, I think as crazy as last year was, you know, we were a part of the Goldman Sachs Black and Latinx cohort, which was amazing. It was the inaugural year, the first time they'd ever done it. And we got, you know, connected with so many other entrepreneurs and connected with so many people within the Goldman Sachs organization um, that really just those relationships have helped us to, you know, do some different deals, which has been really awesome and just Mm. understand some different things better. Um, you know, launching channels. Like I said, last year was a really big year for us. We went from having one channel essentially to having the five different channels going in so many different places. You know, being able to be on the Roku channel, being able to be a part of Samsung TV Plus, being able to, you know, and we've got so many more that are that are just like in the pipeline of launching that I'm so excited about. Um, you know, 250 million homes and devices is nothing to kind of snuff at. And yeah, I know. It's pretty, part, it's so. pretty massive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know how I don't even know how this thing goes. How did you learn business? They don't teach they don't teach in law school. They don't. You know, it's so funny. One of my one of my biggest regrets is I realized my second the summer of my second year that I wish I would have gotten my MBA. Hmm. And that was like, and I was like, oh man, I wish I would have done that. And so I was part, I'd had a corporate law track. Um, so I, I did learn some things from that perspective. Um, I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and it was really that summer, my my 2L summer, I worked for a business and I got to work with their, um, their in-house counsel, but I also worked with their CFO. And that was my first kind of like, oh, that's how this works. Okay, this is interesting. Um, and then from that perspective, having that understanding, taking the courses um, in law school, then when I started working with entrepreneurs as an attorney, I could kind of talk the language a little bit more, but it still never truly prepares you for actually being an entrepreneur like it it just no. never does right well, so nor, nor does your mba <laughs> yeah so yeah i i picked the right degree luckily i think um but i think i think uh actually getting in and really doing it and really having amazing advisors to help has has made a big difference not trying to always figure it out on your own mm. um, it's 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 definitely helped yeah, it's like case precedent. There's also some business precedent, right? Just just kind of follow the business precedent and do what the smart people did. I have exactly. a um, a close friend from from school growing up. Did his got his law degree from Ottawa U and then got his MBA from Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And when he graduated, he was smart enough on the business side. He's like, I don't want to go work for a law firm. I just want to start one, and I don't want to start a small one. I want to start a big one. There you go. So he started a big tech law firm in Toronto, and he ended up leading the the um, public offering for Research in Motion, which was BlackBerry. And oh, that was wow. that was one of their first big deals. So now this, yeah, his company in Toronto is this massive law firm, and he's still the principal with one other par- partner. But when you get off the elevator lobby, when you when you get out of the elevator, there's this massive silver pool table right in front of you. And he <laughs> said they wanted to rip people out of their perception of what a law firm was going to be like, and they wanted to like. So his law firm feels like an internet company. It's super cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, he's like, and, you know, if you if you wear a tie, they're going to cut it off. It's kind of cool. <laughs> All right, Aaliyah, if we go back to the 22, 23-year-old, 24-year-old Aaliyah graduating from law school, what advice would you give yourself back then that maybe you know to be true today, but what do you wish you knew back then? Um, oh, that's a good question. I think uh, you're going to learn everything you need to know. 
don't rush it. Don't rush it. Because I think I specifically, I remember at, at that point, I was really having big regrets around not, about not getting my MBA at the same time as getting my law degree. And I was like, I don't want to go back to school and spend more money on it, but I really regret not doing it. And so I was, you know, trying to be one of those smart people and looking online for all the online courses you could take for free that basically make, made up a, an MBA. And, you know, just just spending so much time thinking I missed out. Mm. And at the end of the day, I got the best MBA equivalent by actually having this business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you just curious, do you what do you think of the traditional university education system now? Would you tell 20 year olds to go to university or would you say, fuck it, go work for some fun entrepreneurial companies and cut your chops unless you want to go be a lawyer or a, a you know an engineer or a dentist like right like something you have to have a degree with yeah. I think um I think gap years are not a bad idea I took a gap year between uh college and law school and I think if I would have just jumped right into law school from college it would have been a whole different story and I think it, having a that real world perspective because college at the end of the day it's going to teach you knowledge, but it doesn't teach you experience. You don't know what it's like, mm-hmm. like in, in the office, in business, dealing with customers, mm-hmm. dealing with things like that. And so, you know, if not a gap year, take a lighter load and get an internship and work somewhere that actually is what you want to do. Because yeah. a lot of times I know people, you know, they poo poo at the internships thing, but at the end of the day, it's not so much about, you know, necessarily getting the experience for me, it was understanding what do I actually want to do? You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to, when I went to, when I first went to law school and I made the decision to go to law school, it was like, okay, I want to work in entertainment. I really want to work in entertainment. That's all I could talk about. I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but it was, I had, by the time I graduated from law school, I had worked for a small firm that worked with independent producers. I'd worked for an in-house at an actual production company and I'd worked for a major studio. And I think being able to have all of those different experiences helped me to understand very clearly that like the big studio system was not for me because you are very much a tiny, 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 tiny cog in a very large machine. And you have no idea what anyone else is doing. And if you're a person like me who wants to see the big vision and have a bigger and a better understanding of that working in the studio system, wouldn't work. It would like, just wouldn't cut it. But if I would have gone through law school, not done that, gone and worked for a studio, I probably would have hated it, but I also would have been like, yeah, but I mean, this is the dream, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What did you do for your, what'd you do for your gap year? Um, I worked in a law firm and that's what was so crazy is that like, I hadn't planned on, in spite of my third grade musings, I did not plan on going to law school. I didn't plan on becoming a lawyer, but Mm -hmm. I graduated, I graduated in 2007. I was living in Michigan. The, you know, the economy tanked there before it tanked everywhere else. So it was not me. And I got very lucky and got a job at a law firm for one of my best friends in college and uh, as her dad's law firm. And I worked there for a year and it was in that experience of like, and and the thing wasn't that I I loved what they were doing. They did like workers comp and like, you know, things I definitely was not into, but what I was excited about was that it was never boring. I was never Mm going to just like be able to do everything by rote. Like I like being simulated mentally. I like being able to have something new and exciting and figuring things out, obviously working in this industry that nobody knows what they're doing. I like the challenge. And so being able to work in that law firm, I could see how that was something that I actually would be able to enjoy. And then making the decision to go to law school made more sense for me. Well, you've definitely got the new and exciting in front of you. 
Well, <laughs> Aaliyah Daniels, the COO for Reverie. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was, was awesome. Super fun. I have a podcast. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. It's amazing. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.